This is Mark Blood. And I'm Tim Mason. And welcome to Episode 2 of Blood, Sweat, and Tim. You've never worked harder in your life. You've invested a lot of time, talent, and more than likely, treasure your blood, sweat, and tears into growing your business. Live from Crystal Pick Studios in Fairport, New York, it's another episode of Blood, Sweat, and Tim with your hosts, Mark Blood and Tim Mason. An informative, engaging, we hope you find entertaining podcast that offers you, the business owner, partner, senior level manager, serial entrepreneur, or just the new kid on the block. Interesting information and perspectives on a host of timely topics from finance, HR, marketing, and healthcare to starting up and winding down all to help you better manage and hopefully grow your business. Are you ready? BST on three. BST! Hey, Mark, who's our next guest? Our next guest today is uh, Ed Schill, who uh, I met probably in the early uh, 1990s for the first time. And sometimes I have classified him as being the most interesting man in the world. Um, sometimes I picture him. Does he on, drink Dos Equis? Uh, sometimes I picture him on those commercials. But uh, uh, I've been blessed to know Ed for a long, long time. As I said, the early 1990s. And uh, he's always been one of the, uh, I guess I would say, most passionate business people that I know. Uh, he is uh, hes very interested in his business. He's very interested in his clients. And uh, it comes through in how he takes great care of them. Ed is a... Uh, um, here in the minor leagues with Tim and I as kind of a rock star in the, uh, in the podcast area and in uh, journalism. He's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business News, Barron's, and Market Watch. Ed is the uh, CEO of QCI Asset Management. Uh, he holds a number of other roles there as their chief investment officer, chief financial officer. Uh, he also heads up all of their equity research and uh, has been uh, nice enough to bless us with his presence today. Uh, and uh, we, we can kick it off with our interrogation of Ed and, and get some of his interesting I'm already feeling my portfolio rising right now. You know, these conversations are going to be tremendous. I'm going to go home and, and uh, go on the computer and move some money around. Anyway, Ed, thanks for being here. Really appreciate that. Sure, Tim. Thanks to be. Yeah. Nice to um, be here. Well, you know, I guess boil it down. Why should small businesses really care about what the market's doing? Um, what does it tell them about the future of their respective businesses, maybe? Well, I would say both, uh, you know, locally and nationally, that when we look back through history and we look at uh, the the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, it was really a good example of what happens to what we call discretionary spending. What happens when the market declines is people tend to put the brakes on. And while they may continue to buy soap and shampoo and toilet paper, they do not need to go to that extra meal or, uh, you know, spend uh, another client event or, as, you know, we've talked in the past, uh, marketing spending, advertising dollars, things like that. So it's got a big play. People's confidence goes up. Their disposable income tends to be linked to their portfolios, and their net worth is uh, obviously higher. So it's a very important part of it. But I also think that you got to make sure you don't put on beer goggles when you uh, when the market, like we are today, at an all-time high. 
you got to be careful that you Trump, don't get Trump, too. Trump, exactly, Trump, Trump. Exactly. You know, Willie Nelson used to have a great line. He said, I never went to bed with an ugly woman, but I sure did wake up with a couple. And that's so when you think about where the market is today, every stock you buy looks like a winner. Uh, it might not be so going forward. And, you know, so that's why I think you got to be a little uh, paying attention if you're a small business owner uh, to where the market's going. And, and are uh, there certain, um, you know, indexes and things, if they're in a, you know, they're in a food business or they're in a service business of some some segment that they can monitor this and really understand what their specific segments are doing? Yeah, there are a, a basket of ETFs that you can follow. For example, if uh, you're, in, uh, you're a utility executive, you could follow the ticker. It's called an XLU. It follows a basket of utilities. If you're in the tech business and you're in semiconductors or something like that, you could follow the XLK. Um, and there's a host of subgroups, if you will, the food industry, uh, the oil industry that you could follow to see how that's going. That's kind of backward looking from my perspective. I think you need to be a little bit careful of following the market in the microcosm. I'm sure, you know, we got a lot of gray hairs in this room that, uh, you know, remember your parents used to At say- At least some of us hair, have yeah, hair. Well, okay, know. Mark, sorry about that. Um, it's, uh, you know, our parents used to say, don't sit too close to the TV. It's the same thing in the investment world. You sit too close to the TV and you're looking at this thing every day. Um, it's usually not a positive. I do think the small business owner needs to look at it from the macro. And I think they need to be aware that, uh, you know, when times are good, they're not going to stay there. And when times are bad, like there were in 08, 09, they're not going to fall out of bed. But if I'm, if I'm that small business owner and I, and I have... Uh, one or two things on my list that I need to pay attention to from an investment perspective when I'm talking about uh, my retirement assets or a non-qualified portfolio that I've developed uh, over the success of my business. What what do you tell people are the one or two things that they should pay attention to? This 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 builds the right foundation to how you're going to invest. Yeah, I would think the, the mistake that I see is the investment business has a, a upward sloping demand curve to take you back to your economics uh, class in high school. It's the only business I know where if you raise the price of something, people like it even better. Apple at 50, people like it. Apple at 200, they think it's the best thing since sliced bread. And it really is the opposite of way, you know, around that. If your Rolex watch was 500, you'd probably have two of them. If they're 3,500, you probably own one. But I mean, is that, that, kind of but is that because they just don't know how to assess value? And, and you do. You, you provide, uh, what I always tell clients that a guy like Ed Schill provides to them, them is he provides a discipline. And that discipline comes out of knowing when the stocks become too expensive. The words I've always heard you use is oversold or overbought. And I think that's where the discipline comes in what you deliver to a client. I think that um, the problem that the average investor has is they believe that they're either their chips are all in the middle of the table or they're all off on the side. I'm a huge believer in zones. The zones overbought like we are now market, does not mean it's going to sell off. It could stay overbought for two or three years. We saw that in the late 1990s during the whole tech bubble. The market looked overbought in 96. didn't peak out till three years later in 1999. But it does mean that you have to have some airbags to the portfolio in 97, 98, 99, because when the market does tip over, and they don't ring a bell at the top, 
that you have got to have some protection, a game plan, a floor stop, if you will, so you don't participate when the market declines 50, 60, 70 percent. We've had two 50 percent bear markets in the last 15 so, years. So at the at the intro of introducing Ed, I described Ed as being a passionate guy. And you might hear his hands hitting on the table because he, like me, talks with his hands and his passion comes through with his hands. And I, I think that that passion comes out of how he advises clients um, to when they think something is beautiful, when they think Apple is beautiful at 200, he's the guy who is providing them with feedback and providing them with the discipline that says Apple at 200 is overbought. And here's the reasons why you shouldn't be an Apple at 200. Um, how do people react to that advice when you give it to them? How do people react when you say this stock has done extraordinarily well or this position has done extraordinarily well? It's time to sell it. Well, my long-term clients know that we've got a pretty good track record of being able to scale in and scale out in Ames. You know, Apple is just an example that at $50, it was our single largest position, and we've scaled it twice since then. It doesn't mean we don't like it. I think there's a new iPhone coming out this fall. I think it's going to be phenomenal. I want a smaller position today after it has done so very well. My long-term clients think that's great. My short-term clients sometimes get out of sync with us, and that's where you need an extremely opinionated money manager, somebody that's willing to grab you by the nap of the neck and say, you know, this is what we're doing. And this is our style, and this is how we're going to put airbags to the portfolio. The market is clearly overbought to me, clearly overbought. You need to protect it somehow. One way to do it is with this airbag strategy that we've but, talked but what's about. But that, what's that mean? What do, what do, air, what do airbags mean? An airbag mean? strategy would be you buy Amazon at 300 You think it can go to 700 And you know what? You're right, and it goes there. And it keeps going. So you put a floor stop underneath it. If the market's overbought, you need a floor stop. If it's 2008, you really don't care. So, so by floor stop, basically what you're doing is you're deploying a strategy that says, I'm going to, in effect, sell Amazon at a point in time in the future to be able to limit what my downside is on that position. Right. And is what you do is you put that floor stop underneath where the stock is today. So the stock's at, uh, the stock says at 800, you put a floor stop at 750. I'm having lunch with Tim, hit 750. Our trading desk will sell half our position. If it doesn't hit that and goes to 850, you raise your floor stop up. So you chase it higher. So your client sees you buy a stock at 300 and sell it at 1,000. We were willing to sell it at 700, but the floor stop kept us in the game. It makes us look smarter than we are. We usually call an overbought market too early. As far as I knew, an airbag was in my car, so this is a, a great conversation. It's the same concept, Tim. It really is the idea that when the market comes unglued and wrecks like it did during the tech bubble or wrecks like it did in 2007, 2009, doesn't mean you don't get hurt, but you don't hopefully get killed. And during that same period, you know, uh, if a lot of small business owners were probably like myself, they didn't want to open their 401k statements. They were worried what was going to happen. They were seeing the market go down. Let's boil this down a little bit to more basic level. So, you know, a lot of small business owners, small business, you know, they got their life savings involved in their business. Their 401k may be one of the things that is, you know, really their future retirement. As it relates to 401ks and what you do and and uh, equity positions, how can what do they need to look for? What can they be doing with their 401k? What strategies should they be employing today to maybe help them, you know, 
have a more prosperous retirement. You know, on the 401k plan side, this again, to me, is where people have an upward sloping curve. It's 2008, so a lot of people move money out of the stock market and go to money market accounts. Market rally, so they're all in cash at the bottom or under their mattress. What most people need to do is there's never a bad time to have a good risk level. So what you need to do is make sure at all times you have a good risk level. And then you put your own airbags on in your 401k plan. You're a young man with silver hair, but the market's 2008. I would probably have you relatively aggressive. Today, I probably wouldn't. I'd want to have some dry powder, even in my 401k plan, so if the market rolled over, we could do something. And that something would be that if we normally would have you 75% stocks, well, maybe we only have you have 50% stocks. The other 25 to 50% is hidden in cash and fixed income. Market sells off. Is this a time to start playing a little bit in the stock market? I mean, if you had some extra cash, you move it in there and, or, or, you know, you still maintain a conservative approach and put it into your 401k or, you know, I'm saying if you had $10,000, $25,000, $50,000, just say, hey, Ed, uh, Apple looks good. Amazon looks good. Google looks good. What can we do? Yeah, I've never found the playing part to be very successful for most people. In our business, again, I'm going to go back to the, it's an odd business. People do not go home and watch the accounting channel. They don't. They don't? I could be wrong. (laughs) They don't go home and watch the FASB 101 Mark hasn't had a show yet. Come on in. So... But I, I know that Section 179 <laughs> comes right after Section 178. Nice, yeah. nice. So, you know, my point is that, you know, a lot of people think it is a play thing to do. And when the market's an all-time high, it's fun to pick a to pick a NVIDIA or an Amazon and go home and have Jim Cramer tell you, you know, Tim, you're look how smart you are. That's the difference between speculating and investing. I think people need to separate those two buckets. If you want to you want to speculate and have fun, rock on, you know, open up a E-Trade account and have at it. But, you know, this is real this is the real deal when you're dealing with your 401k but, but plan. Tim, but Tim Tim is the example of the small business person. This is a guy who works his 50, 60 hours a week. He's not going to go home and do that. He is not going to deploy that type of strategy. So, he needs somebody that looks like QCI, that looks like Ed Schill, that is going to deploy that discipline. If he wants to open up his little trading account on the side to have a little bit of fun as though it was gambling, that's one thing. But the the discipline that you guys bring to a guy like Tim is kind of like he goes to bed at night and you're still making him money. Yeah, and we would, you know, in a situation in a small business in a small 401k plan, if we saw an individual inside the 401k plan getting out of hand, and that's, you know, the 70-year-old teeing it up and going 100% equities or the 25-year-old going all cash, we would have a conversation with that person. So we line item them and see who's out of line. And I think you need to do that in your 401k and your retirement plan. This is not entertainment. Your day trading account could be entertainment, but don't put a lot of chips into that basket. I really think, you know, this is an important life-altering move. And until you've seen somebody make a bad call and the market drops 50%, do you realize how, you know, what that actually means? You see the whites, you know, absolute fear in somebody when they've totally whiffed and they've had their retirement plan in a wrong bucket and they've lost 70% of it. It really is life-altering. So when, when, you, when you talk about life-altering, wh- where, do you see, where do you see people kind of um, getting off the rails? You know, the, the, classic, the classic thing I hear from people is, 
oh my, the market's going down, I'm going to cash, I'm going to gold, I'm going to precious metals because if 2008 happens again, gold is going to hold up. Gold is always going to be the, the standard bearer to, to stop uh, me from losing you know, all, everything that I've built. Um, is that an off-the-rails strategy? Is that where people really get lost because they're listening to the late-night infomercials? I think they get lost on both ends of the market. You just explained somebody getting lost in an oversold market in 2008 where they think the world's coming to an end. and the markets. I've had clients say to me, the market's going to zero. The market's going to zero. That's how irrational they were. They agreed with us that the market was oversold. So what do they do? They go to cash right at the wrong time. They buy gold. They dabble in areas they shouldn't be in. They, as they said, you know, as Tim said, they pull cash out and, you know, put it in their gun safe and things like that. People do the opposite of that at the top. I got people playing Bitcoin now. Uh, thankfully, not my clients, but people I've talked to that are playing Bitcoin like it's, it's an hot investment. right now. Of course it is. It was, it's up 40% from uh, August 1st. It's scary. Um, but my point is that's what people do at the extremes. Most people do not need a professional money manager in the middle of the market. Why? They should go passive and they should buy an index fund. But they'll screw up when the market's overbought and they'll screw up when it's oversold. Happens all the time. But, but to me, to me the, how, what, I, what I always explain to my clients as being the benefit of that professional money manager is not the upside. It's not the upside of the market. It's what they do for you when the market corrects. What they do for you when the market, when the curve is heading down in the market. Why why do you think that, what part of that don't you think people totally grasp? How do you do that? How do you save them on the downside? Well, it's interesting. Anybody, even an individual investor, can, can protect themselves on the downside via asset allocation. Why you hire a professional money manager is to be what we call non-normally distributed, i.e., we're going to give you more of the upside and really protect you on the downside. Anybody could just half-hedge half themselves in their own you know, E-Trade account. But uh, you know what professional managers try to do, if the market goes up 20, we'll try to go up 15. Market goes down 20, we only want to go down five. And the way you do that is when the market's overbought, you use floor stops and cash allocations. Ed, I'm wondering, um, you know, I have a 27-year-old and 23, 24-year-old son, and uh, my 24-year-old opened an E-Trade account and, you know, invested a little money in there. You know, let's talk a little bit about millennials and investing. I mean, there are a lot of those people in the small businesses today, and uh, while uh, they're encouraged to participate in the 401ks and things, what what's your advice for millennials out there, you know, if they're thinking about investing? And, you know, that's the beauty of it, right? Starting young, I was so glad that I started taking that five bucks and put it in my 401k when I was, you know, 23 years old. And uh, now it's provided an opportunity for me to, you know, hopefully have a halfway decent retirement. But... What, what do you tell those people, you know, who are 23 to 26-year-old now who, you know, maybe don't understand the importance of, you know, investing and putting away a little money, whether it be in a 401k or even, you know, opening their own E-Trade account? Right. You know, I think that the bigger driver for uh, younger people is getting into a plan such as the 401k, um, Roth accounts, Roth IRAs, things of that nature, and just aggressively deferring as much as they can before they even realize what's coming out of their retirement plan. Because as we know, a dollar in a 401k plan is not a dollar out of your wallet because of the tax savings piece of that. And the match from your employer and the other things that come along with the fact that you just put $1 in. 
Right. So, I mean, from my perspective, I think the best advice I have is to allocate as much of your deferrals, as much as your savings as you can into the retirement plan bucket, which to me is super important. But also, when you think about the investment profile, try not to be a market timer. You're not going to get at these dollars for 40 years. You do not need to be worried. You're you're going to live through three, four, five, six corrections before you re, before you get to retirement. Don't get too focused. As I said, get your face off the screen. You don't need to be you know, watching the market day to day, you should be more focused on deferrals. Roth IRAs are a good thing. We've talked, uh, you know, in the past about college savings 529 plans. You can set those up before you even have kids. So, I mean, there's a lot of venues for young people to aggressively participate, even with smaller dollars, just to have them get started and thinking in the mindset that this is something that don't wait till you're 50 years old to worry about what your bucket, you, you know, when you go to retire. So, so, so as, as you guys uh, make assessments of equity positions and you have the, the I, I, want, I guess I won't call them startup companies, but you have companies like Uber uh, that clearly they have no cash flow. And as an accountant, I sit back and go, the value of a business is driven by its earnings. The value of a business is driven by its cash flow. And the value of the business is driven by what it builds on its balance sheet as a result of its operations. That's that's the accountant in me. You have companies like Uber that I guess you could say are startup companies, still privately held, not publicly traded. They burn cash like it was cordwood that your father put into the stove, but yet they have these massive valuations that are attached to these companies. How do you guys think about that when you think about portfolios? And, and not that you can buy Uber, but other companies that are like that. Well, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of companies like that. Amazon is like that. Amazon's mission is not profit-driven at this point. Everybody thinks they're going to leak out margins in the retail business, and the stock has been just a monster because they have been able to take over the world. They started out as a book distributor online, and now it's anything. People search on Amazon. So I, I believe— An Amazon package shows up my house every day yeah. because— we have Prime. That's the, why you have to order. Right. So when you think about that, if you believe in their model, we like the Amazon model. I have said for about seven years that Amazon's taken over the world. I say that jokingly, but when you look at the models and the areas and the spaces that they get to, they have it down pretty sweet. The stock is almost unanalyzable, Mark, because they spend a lot of cash. They don't leak out profits. If someday they did, the stock could even be you know markedly higher so, from here. So that's that's a spot where you vary from where where you get where you develop a different strategy on assessing that position than being able to say I'm looking at earnings per share, I'm looking at cash for flow, sure. I'm looking at I'm looking at what's on your balance sheet. You guys see Amazon and you see the future because of other intrinsic things that you're looking at to assess whether you're going to own it or not. We have interesting meetings about every four or five weeks. We're, we call them tailwind meetings. And all the analysts at QCI are invited to this meeting if you have a tailwind concept. If you don't have one, you can't come in. A tailwind name could be, I think Trump's going to be a positive for construction, granite construction based in California. They build highway roads, et cetera. That's a tailwind name. Tailwind, wind at their back for the next five or 10 years. NVIDIA makes... Uh, uh, they make chips for Bitcoin. They make chips for Bitcoin. They make chips for autonomous driving vehicles. They make uh, chips for um, artificial intelligence and uh, virtual reality screens and things of that nature. We think that company's got tailwind for a long time. It is very expensive. 
you have to treat them differently. And one way you treat those differently is to have very tight floor stops. If Amazon came unglued, this stock could go from 1,000 to 500 in a heartbeat. You want a tight floor stop to that name because you are playing with something that's a little game. So, so, those, so a stock like Amazon, um, they miss earnings per share by a couple pennies, becomes very volatile, right? Um, where if you look at, you know, an established company like an IBM or somebody along those lines, they miss earnings per share by a penny and they don't get punished as much. Um, how, how do you guys, how do you, how do you bake that into what you're thinking about in a portfolio, knowing that you have Amazon that has, uh, I guess you could say big beta, big up and down based on very, very small moves. Uh, versus somebody like you know an IBM or a General Motors or somebody that's a, a little more established. Yeah, the more established companies, you 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 better have a secular theme on their outlook. So, for example, we don't own any of the autos. We don't own GM. We don't own Ford. And the reason we don't is because North American auto sales are at a peak. Things are pretty good in the auto industry, and we think they're going to roll over. But they're pretty good right now. You can't look at what's going on right now. The best time to buy the auto companies are when in the middle of the recession, when nobody's buying a car. Which is, which is kind of like why you buy McDonald's at that point in time exactly. or why you buy Wendy's at that point in time as well. So, I mean, it's, a, it, it's, it's also a mindset of where you think the economy is. The time to buy oil stocks is not when oil's 140 and everybody's high-fiving themselves because the oil companies are making a lot of cash. The time to buy it is when it's below the cost of their production and they're, and they're shutting in production. It's counterintuitive to think about that relative to putting stocks in the portfolio. Amazon for us and, and, and that kind of mindset, the NVIDIA's of the world, the Granite Construction, United Reynolds are names that we don't really care where the economy is today because we think that they've got wind at their back for the next five, six years, and I don't care where the economy is. I think about a company like Constellation Brands, and I once heard, uh, I think it was Richard Sands back in the early 2000s say, you know what, if the economy tanks, people change the venue. They don't change the fact that they're going to drink. They're not going to go out. They're going to stay home, right? Don't we have to kind of find those opportunities that maybe are less volatile for the market, and I'm sure they're out there. Oh, I, that, that is for sure. We call them consumer staple names. So a consumer staple name is a name that really will do well no matter where the economy goes. Uh, that's not true with a consumer cyclical name. Harley-Davidson, for example, is a stock that we've traded over time. We don't like it now. The economy's too good. And uh, if you think the economy is going to slow down, that's, a, that's not a name you want to own. But you can own Johnson & Johnson in here. You can own a Pfizer. You can own a, a Zimmer Healthcare. Something where if you need a hip implant, you probably don't really care that GDP next quarter is going to be 1% versus 2 in the last quarter. So I do care because I'm having an Im hip implant next Wednesday. Well, I hope it's a Zimmer uh, product because we're long the stock. I think it is. So. He'll, he'll, Your stock will go up that day. He'll, he'll make sure of it. Now I got two of them, by the way. So, you know, six months apart. One, la uh, one question as we kind of start to wrap up here. Obviously, uh, the Trump effect is, has a little, you know, positive effect on the market at this point. What do we need to look for in government regulation and other things that may be coming up? Are there anything that, you know, is on your radar screen that says, if this happens, be careful? Is there any advice? And I know I'm not, I shouldn't ask for advice. Is there anything that you guys have as kind of red flags that if something happens in the government, it could have a detrimental or, or at the same time, a green flag, a positive effect on the market? I think the green flag that we think is coming that we're, 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 forecasting will be a positive, will be less regulations on the banks. The banks in the last eight years have really been handcuffed on what they can do. Go try to get a mortgage. So does that mean 
easier to get a small business loan? It could be easier to get a small business loan. Not yet. Talk to people that are going out to get get one, and they make you go through a full cavity exam. We think that's going to be alleviated. One of the areas that I think, and it's maybe a less, less regulatory, but still kind of a Trump administration effect that people aren't talking about, which I think could be a real wild card as we get into uh, early 2018, is uh, does Trump appoint Janet Yellen back at the Fed? Um, what? We, what? We have uh, we have had people in the past as Fed chairman that have been politically appointed, and that doesn't go well. If he was to appoint somebody that would be uh, administratively friendly, I think that uh, that would uh, that would be very nervousing for us. So, so you think you think somebody that uh, if if he removed Yellen and put in place somebody that would um, do what he wanted to do. You think that could be pretty detrimental? I think it could be a, definitely a long-term negative because we've seen that in the past with Fed chairmen that have been politically appointed and they've let inflation get out of hand. You know, there's a great quote about inflation. It's like toothpaste. Once it comes out of the tube, it's tough to get back in. And inflation is like that. People, you know, we're trying to ebb and flow inflation around 2%. They better be careful because if they let that leash a little too long, it's tough to bring it from four back to two. Ed, lastly, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, Trump and, uh, you know, we all know that they've been fighting over the health care bill and repeal and replace. And you're just talking about, you know, stocks uh, for hip implants and things. Is there any effect? Uh, what effect on the stock market is this whole health care reform going to have? Well, I think one of the things we've seen that's been good for the market is this this level of discourse in the Republican Party has been a net positive because nothing's getting done. The market likes it when nothing gets done. And uh, you're seeing a very splintered GOP at this point. So as nothing gets done, status quo is pretty good. Maybe the Fed doesn't have to tighten as much. Um, do we get tax regulation? Do we get tax uh, uh uh, reform as we go through the rest of the year. That's a this whole discourse is a net positive for the market because then the Fed sits back on their heels. Well, I think I think the fact that Congress is not getting anything done and Trump doesn't seem to be getting anything done gives people surety on what's going to happen. And I think the thing that's most disruptive to people making investment decisions and business decisions is an environment where they don't know how to predict what's going to happen. And that's what, uh, you know, volatility in tax reform causes people to sit back on their heels. Volatility from a business perspective, uh, from government regulation, causes people to sit back on their heels and, and wait and see. I've had three last questions, but I have one other thing. How does North Korea and some of the issues that are happening there internationally start to impact the stock market? I mean, I haven't really seen it affected with three test missiles or whatever, but... It scares the hell out of me, quite frankly. It scares the hell out of me, too. And when the market's over, if the market's oversold, those things don't tend to have a big impact. Why? Because it's already discounted in there. People have done their selling. Markets declined 50%. This market's overbought. And the rhetoric that we're getting from North Korea is a very big negative to me. And the market's looking through it. And I think that's a mistake. That is another reason why we have below average equity allocations and we've tightened our floor steps. That is one wild card amongst many that I think uh, gives you pause for wanting to at least make sure the door's unlocked. So when the fire alarm goes off, you know how to get out. And, uh, and I think it's important to make sure that that's, uh, you know, that's just one of many. That is probably the scariest. 
if 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 you looked at you know in, in kind of maybe some uh, some parting thoughts if you if you looked at a guy who sits in Tim's shoes who runs uh, a marketing firm has dozens of people that work for him um, you know they're a big part of the community from from an investment perspective what are the things that you would you would tell him to pay attention to or you would tell the small business person to pay attention to because they're going to be meaningful to your retirement plan or to your um, your investment portfolio. What should they think about? I mean, I really think big picture, especially for somebody like Tim and his staff, is the idea that the structure of your retirement plan is critically important. The, uh, the overall profile of it, the cost structure, the uh, diversity of the funds that are in there, and the education about what you talked about, Tim, the whole idea that jacking up your deferrals is aggressively and as high as you can. That's way more important than wondering if we're going to have an 11% correction between now and the end of the year. That's a rounding error relative to deferrals, cost of your plan, the structure of, of, of your 401k plan and things like that. Those are the big drivers. And uh, the younger we get, the more important that is. Because we're going to, you know, younger people are going to live through way more corrections than than the three of us. And I know small business owners take that very seriously. I mean, I, I, I really, you know, I go into every quarterly review meeting with um, staff and the 401k company to say, you need to listen. You need to pay attention. You need to, you know, invest when you can, you know, give a little bit of your salary. You won't miss it right into this and try and push that because somebody needs to act a little bit like dad sometimes with some of the people who work for us and just encourage that. There's and a I know I take it very seriously. In there's, terms a, of, there's a real fear for me on this concept of complacency, complacency on the market, complacency in 401k plans, because they tend not to look at it too overly tightly when the market's at an all-time high. They open their statement, things look good. They don't know if their fees are 2% or 0.5. Complacency is a real death nail. You know, I, it, it's like high blood pressure. It's the silent killer. And uh, complacency, you need to be vigilant when everybody else is half asleep. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that's excellent advice. So in wrapping up here, Ed, um, if, if people want to get in touch with uh, who I've dubbed to be the most interesting man in the world, uh, what is the, uh, what, what is the um, best way to get in touch with you? Maybe an email address, uh, QCI sure. contact Yeah, our website, which is uh, e-qci.com, is probably the easiest way. You can find us in there, uh, phone number 585-218-2060. Uh, email eshill, E-S-H-I-L-L, at e-qci.com. Um, I'm going, home, I'm going they... home right now and uh, changing my allocations. <laughs> <laughs> Ed, thanks so much for appreciate joining it. us. Thanks, thanks a lot. Both. We, we Thank appreciate you, you spending a little time with us. Thanks. From Mark Blood and Tim Mason, thanks for listening to this edition of Blood, Sweat, and Tim. We hope you'll keep putting your blood, sweat, and tears into your business and that you'll join us for our next BST podcast. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to Blood, Sweat, and Tim on your favorite podcast app.